Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome to the Everything USC podcast on the Believe Podcast Network, Los Angeles' number one sports podcast network. The only place with the show for every team in LA and more. We believe in our teams. Do you believe? I'm your host, Nara Wang, and in this episode, we're going to talk baseball. With Major League Baseball set to start a 60-game regular season on July 23rd, the Korea Baseball Organization being shown live in the wee early morning hours on ESPN while most American sports have been suspended, and USC being the greatest college baseball program in history, I had to find someone who has experience with all three. So let me welcome in a current scout for the Toronto Blue Jays, a former scout for the LG Twins of the KBO, and a former USC and TCU baseball player, Stephen Yu. Stephen, thanks for joining me today to talk about the world of baseball. Thanks, Dara. Happy to be here. Appreciate having you on. And of course, if you enjoy listening to the Everything USC podcast, please subscribe and rate the show wherever you find your favorite podcasts, whether it's iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, or TuneIn. You can also go to the website Believe.com, that's B-L-E-A-V.com, on social media at Believe Podcasts. For me personally, you can find and follow me on Twitter at Nara Wang Sports. That's N-A-R-A-W-E-N-G Sports. Steven, any social media or websites you want to promote? Yeah, you could find me on Twitter at Steven38U. Also, if you want to follow the Toronto Blue Jays on our Sprint to 60 games, that'd be great too at Twitter at Blue Jays. My guest today has one of the more interesting resumes in sports, so I'm going to begin by just letting him describe his journey in baseball and his professional life, from being a player to ending up in his role now as a Major League Baseball scout. Steven, take our audience through the path that has brought you to where you are today. Yeah, so born and raised in Los Angeles. I was lucky enough. I went to SC out of high school. I was there for the 2002 season. I redshirted. I ended up transferring and played college baseball at TCU. And after that, I ended up playing, doing the independent ball circuit for several years. And finally, in the 2011 and 2012 season, I went to go play over in Korea. And after that, Came home and just like a lot of ball players, still trying to figure out what to do with the transition. I ended up doing a lot of, you could say it's consulting work or just helping a lot of KBO teams out there. Since I've played out there for a couple of years, I've got to know a lot of people. And me being a Korean heritage, I've got to know a lot of Korean baseball players, helping them, but also being from here too as well. I had a lot of friends who were playing minor league baseball, big league baseball that had interest in going over and was kind of in the middle of all of that. So I started doing that, and right before the 2017 season, got a call from the LG Twins, and they asked me to be their full-time international scout. My job was to find foreign players for them, so did that for three seasons, and for this season, I got lucky enough, went through the interview process with a couple of MLB teams, but I landed here with the Toronto Blue Jays. And now, even though you started at SC, and like you mentioned, you transferred away to TCU, you did come back to USC to get your degree. That's how much you love USC. Yes. Uh, I mean, SE will be my first, it's like that first love you have. Yeah. After I decided to go play independent ball, I did come back every fall after the baseball season to finish my degree. And I mean, SE will always hold a special place in my heart. 
So let's talk about your experience in the USC baseball program. How was it in that one year that you registered at SC? It was one of the best experiences in my life in general, not only as a person, but also as a baseball player. You know, I came from a really small town and a small prep school. And at the time, not like today where you play all these great players on a national level. Back then, still, it was kind of in your area, maybe in your coast a little bit. Maybe if you're an elite player, you get to play like on the national teams and stuff like that. But I didn't get to experience any of that. So when I got to SC, my recruiting class, I think, was ranked one or two in the country coming in. And we just came off the 2001 Omaha with Mark Pryor and that team. And so there's a lot of expectations. But our freshman class, we had two guys that went in the second round. And we had a lot of really, really good freshmen. And we still had a lot of good players left. So going out there and just compete with them on a daily basis really kind of open up your eyes of what kind of level you have to be at just to play at USC. And obviously at SC at the time is a top five program. And it was fantastic. I mean, I built such good relationships there. And I mean, there's not just the baseball, but you know, life, going to class, hitting 6 a.m. weights, the weight room three days a week in the off season, like all that stuff was all new to me. And it was just a great experience for my first year. I couldn't ask for more. And how much are you still in contact with the program, your former teammates and coaches, that kind of stuff? Well, the program, not as much. I know I've ran into Coach Gillespie a few times when he's done at Irvine for some other reasons. I've seen him. I did keep in contact more with a couple of players of my freshman class. But I mean, obviously, I definitely follow the program since I've left, no matter what. Still SC baseball for me. So I wish I was in contact more. But yeah, that's where I am at with them. Yeah, you know, sometimes you just lose track of some people. That definitely happens. But uh, I think a lot of college-age kids today may not be aware of this, but USC is the most decorated college baseball program of all time. 12 College World Series titles, 11 under the legendary coach Rod Dato, including five in a row from 1970 through 1974. The teams tied for the second-most national championships, LSU and Texas, only have six apiece. So double what second place has. 113 Trojans have gone on to play in the major leagues, more than any other school. That number includes Hall of Fame pitchers Tom Seaver and Randy Johnson, and other notable names like Mark McGuire, Fred Lynn, Tom House, Bretton Aaron Boone, Mark Pryor, like you mentioned, and Barry Zito, and so many more. However, USC hasn't won the College World Series since 1998, which is the year I graduated from SC, and since the last College World Series appearance in 2001, the Trojans have made only three NCAA tournaments in 2002, 05, and 2015. Jason Gill was 10-5 and in his first season as head coach this year when the coronavirus pandemic ended the spring sports season prematurely and is the fourth coach hired to try to revive the program since Mike Gillespie stepped down in 2006. Steven, what do you think has led to the drop-off for SC in baseball, and what needs to happen to restore the program to an elite level? Well, I mean, my thoughts are college baseball and just baseball in general has really changed over the last so years, ever since Coach Gillespie left. And I think a big thing is, you know, I know Coach Cruder came in and Coach Hubs and Coach Cruz. I just think recruiting has changed so much. And I think the way these players are exposed to the travel ball scene and playing really, again, at the national level, they're being exposed to all these schools across the country. So it's not just recruiting in your area. I think it's really become a national recruiting stage. And obviously, Southern California, 
it's a hotbed. And I think recruiting was suffering for a little bit for a few years. But I know it seems like recruiting is back now. I think it's getting better. Another big thing is nowadays, the colleges are going through, it's a big player development stage now in college. You get three years there and a lot of these good pitching coaches and hitting coaches are really turning a lot of kids' careers around in college. And I'm not sure exactly what SC's been doing, but I think they might have been maybe a step or two behind in that area for a while. But hopefully, you know, with Coach Gill coming in with his experience, I think it's a good place to get back on track. Yeah, it seems that part of the issue is that being in Southern California, there's so many good players, but there are also so many other programs now that have come up. Like you mentioned, Mike Gillespie ended up taking over at UC Irvine and took them to the College World Series. You got a former USC coach, John Savage, doing great at UCLA and building up that program over there across town. And then, of course, you got your Fullertons, Long Beach, all those other programs in the area that have really stepped up and seem to have moved ahead of USC. And does it start by getting some of these better players locally to come to USC? Definitely recruiting. It's about recruiting the best players, but it's also recruiting the best fit as well. And I think an element that might be overlooked now, but I know it's really come up, is the player development part. I mean, if you bring in the right guys that you believe that has a lot of room to grow and you believe in your player development program, I really, truly believe that you can really take the program into new heights. You know, you see so many first round, second round kids coming out of college now rather than the high school back in the day. And a lot of it's because you can convince these kids who are, you know, pretty good coming out of high school. You can convince them to come to college instead of signing at 18 and going to pro ball because you can convince them coming to college is basically coming to pro ball for three years while you're getting a degree and then send them off, you know, very, very high draft pick. And talk about that dynamic there, because again, in baseball, you can get drafted right out of high school or you choose to go to college for three years at the division one level. So how tough is it when you're recruiting if guys who are probably high first, second round selections who are more likely to sign a pro contract rather than going to school, how do you have to find those guys who are maybe coming out of high school, a 10th round type of guy and convince them to go to school instead? I mean, it begins with the assessment, the evaluation. you got to identify guys that are really good players, but also has a ceiling for sure, a big ceiling. And it's about, again, a fit. What does your program do really, really well? What do you develop well? What is your vision for the program for these kids to do? So like I said, recruiting has become a national thing. So it doesn't really always have to become a Southern California bet. You can probably recruit a little bit out, even though SE is a private school and it's a little bit more costly. But I do feel like, There's so many good players out there. I mean, you see kids nowadays who are first or second round picks actually forego all that money and go to college because you can convince them, unless you're the first or second pick in the draft, even if you're a later first round pick, you might be able to convince a kid, hey, you come for three years, you might end up being a top five pick, you know? And that's another big, big recruiting tool you can use if you can convince the kid to do that. Yeah, so we definitely hope that USC can turn it around. Like I said, it's the greatest program in college baseball history, and we just have to hope that it can get back to the heights that it once had. And hopefully Jason Gill is the guy to lead us. And it was off to a good start. Like I said, he was 10-5 and early on before everything got shut down in the spring season, and he had a big win over Vanderbilt. That's been a good program in recent years. So hopefully USC can turn around. Hopefully they're going to be playing in the spring again. So we'll see how that goes. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, please subscribe and rate the show wherever you find your podcasts iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, and TuneIn. 
Go to the website, Believe.com, B-L-E-A-V.com. Find us on social media at Believe Podcast. For me, you can send your comments, questions, anything my way on Twitter at Nara Wang Sports, N-A-R-A-W-E-N-G Sports. Steven, where can everyone catch up with you on social media? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter and at Steven38U. Find me there. And I hope you guys follow the Blue Jays as well at Blue Jays on Twitter as well. Trojan fans, this is Brian Jones, college football analyst for CBS Sports. And you're listening to the Everything USC podcast with Nara Wang on the Believe Podcast Network. Back now with my guest for this show, Stephen Yu, a scout for the Toronto Blue Jays and a USC alum. So let's talk about your work with the Toronto Blue Jays. Kind of go in, obviously, I think a lot of people may know that there's different types of scouts. Why don't you describe exactly what your job duties are with the Blue Jays? Yeah, so I work in the pro scouting department. What we do is scout at the pro level, all the other 29 other clubs. And what I do is I have two major league organizations that I cover from the major league level to the minor league level, with the emphasis me being more on the minor league level. So I cover them, but I also end up covering the KBO at the professional level and also the amateur level in Korea. So that seems like a pretty wide-ranging thing. And so you're based in Los Angeles, though, correct? Yeah, I'm based in Los Angeles. It just worked out great where I can stay here. I can hop over to Korea whenever I need to and still have my assignments done here in the U.S. How exactly is the Blue Jays scouting department set up? Like how many people are there and how many people are covering different things? Everybody's scouting department is probably a little bit different. Ours is uh, probably on the bigger side and we have different layers, but we have probably at least each person covered about anywhere from two to four clubs. On top of that, we have some coordinators that goes on top to kind of oversee us. And then we have special assignment people to cross us. So I can tell you it's a pretty big department, but it's usually kind of the same where everybody has their assignments. And then as you move up, we have a lot of people that check our work. So you went through the interview process with a few different MLB teams to get this job. Do you feel any difference with the fact that the team's based in Toronto versus an American-based team? You know, I don't think so. It's just because I get to work remotely from home in Los Angeles. I guess I think if I were to be based in Canada and Toronto would be probably a little bit different. But I don't think that's that different either. I think scouting still scouting. We still have our assignments and we compete the same way we do with all the other 29 clubs. So I don't think anything else is different. And of course, I think one of the biggest things in recent years that have come to the forefront is analytics. And there used to be maybe a little bit of a pushback from traditional old school scouts against analytics. How much of a role now does analytics play in scouting? I mean, nowadays, analytics is such a good tool to use. You know, some organizations probably use it as their base and some don't. But analytics still definitely is a player in today's game and in scouting and in player development and all aspects of baseball operations. So nowadays, without a basic knowledge of it, it's a little bit difficult to understand what's going on in the day-to-day. We just had the Major League Baseball draft about a month ago or so. How much of a role do scouts play during the draft? Obviously, you guys are helping prepare the organization for the draft, but on the actual draft days, are you guys in contact in case they need to like, hey, we need to know a little bit more about this player versus another player, that type of stuff? Well, I don't work in the amateur, but just seeing what they've been doing this year and just watching what they were doing, I mean, scouts are still, I think, the bloodline of baseball. I mean, they're the one out there 
getting every information, every nugget, developing the relationship with the kids, the head coaches and the parents. It's so important. And knowing every single information about a player, especially, you know, when it comes to the draft, it's so important. So, I mean, it really starts with the scouts down at all the areas. And for someone who's maybe listening and saying, hey, this sounds interesting and you have a kind of unique path into it, how would someone get into scouting? I mean, you said it perfectly. I really had a unique way of getting into working for a major league team. But, you know, nowadays, the idea that you have to be a baseball player and you must have played, I think is not as important as it used to be. I think the most important thing is to be able to acclimate yourself with all the baseball, like I said, like analytics and just watching a lot of baseball and being able to sit there and look at games and to evaluate each player's each position is really just important. And using that, I mean, the first step is just to get in an organization in whatever role it is, whether it's video coordinating or minor league operations or anything just as an intern, like that's the best way to start. And then from there, you just got to go with where the organization sees best you fist. And some guys do end up getting scouting jobs. Some guys just get operations jobs. But that's the best way to, I feel like, is the way to get into scouting nowadays. And what are the goals for your career? Where do you see yourself down the line? And what do you hope to accomplish in baseball? I mean, the ultimate goal is just to be a part of a really a good and a winning organization. I know people ask me this question a lot. And it's really tough to say what my long-term goals is. It's more like I have a lot of short-term goals. And for me, baseball is a really, it's a unique industry where you just don't know what's going to happen. So you just got to set yourself really short-term goals, which I'm doing. And right now it's just working for the Blue Jays, the best of my abilities, getting them evaluations on players and try to help build a, a winning team right now. And from there, you know, a lot of things can happen. But really, I guess the long-term goal you say is to continue to work in baseball. That's pretty much it. Now, let's get into the MLB season, which will be a 60-game regular season for all teams, including the Blue Jays, starting off in Florida against the Tampa Bay Rays. But Stephen, before we get into a preview of your Toronto team, I think we have to discuss the cloud that's hanging over all of sports and the world, really, which is the COVID-19 pandemic that caused this delayed start to the season. With coronavirus cases spiking all over America and different municipalities all handling attempts to control the spread of the illness in a variety of ways, the Blue Jays, as the lone Canadian team, have become greatly impacted by all of this because they will no longer be allowed to play home games in Toronto because of the restrictions Canada has on travel between their country and the U.S. There are reports that the players don't want to play in a minor league facility, which would rule out Buffalo, where the Jays' AAA franchise is located, nor do they want to be at the spring training site in Florida. So the team is trying to find another MLB team to share its home ballpark with them. What can you tell me about the efforts being made by the Blue Jays to find a home for this 2020 season? Well, I know that talking, having a lot of conversation with a lot of other clubs that we are going to end up playing, and I mean, there's so many options at this point. I know we talked to Pittsburgh. I think Baltimore's name came up. But either way, I think there wasn't a huge expectation that we were going to be able to play in Toronto. It was just more of a hope. But now that it's official, it doesn't really change the fact that the team is still going to go out and compete every single day. It's just a matter of just being together and being able to play consistently. So we'll, it still remains to be seen. But 
there are some options out there. Obviously, they had been dealing with some restrictions while they had the summer camp up there, and I know some of the players were chafing about that a little bit. Well, now this is a whole new wrinkle into everything because you're just trying to find a home now, and not only that, but now all the players would have to relocate to whatever the home base would end up being, whether it's possibly a Pittsburgh or a Baltimore or something like that. How is that going to possibly disrupt the players' routine? We all know baseball players love their routines. I don't think it's going to change too much, to be honest, only because a lot of the guys already there have already made their debuts and they kind of got a taste of the big leagues a little bit. And we do have some veteran players that's been around. So in terms of routine-wise, it might change a little bit. But in terms of the effort and the performance, you still have the same expectations. And I know the guys up there are still just excited to play at this moment, and they're going to bring the fighting spirit every single night, wherever they end up playing. Is it going to be kind of a logistical nightmare, though, just to try and get everything packed up and move to a different city? I would say it's not as bad as people would think, only because, like I said earlier, it wasn't a slam dunk that we were going to be able to play in Toronto. So knowing that, I know there were other plans in place. So it's not as bad as you would originally think. That's good to hear. And of course, it will be interesting to see where the Blue Jays end up with the season just starting off. Again, it seems like Canada's had a better grip on maybe handling the outbreak and getting cases down there. Obviously, that's due to the restrictions they've put in place, which now include banning the Blue Jays from playing home games in Toronto. But I think restrictions are necessary because what happens if there is an outbreak on a team? How is that going to get handled? So there's nothing that's come out with an outbreak on a team. But obviously, if there is one, I mean, you can say like this, maybe the season's in jeopardy. I mean, it's going to be hard if there's an outbreak and one team doesn't play, right? So it's going to be really, really interesting to see if there is an outbreak, what what the protocol is going to be, what the rules are going to be. Are they going to continue to keep playing or not going to keep playing? So still remain to be seen in that scenario. Yeah, I mean, MLB is trying to limit the travel for teams by only playing within the division and the opposite leagues corresponding geographical divisions. So AL East is only playing against other AL East teams and NL East teams and so on across the board. And there have been already some high profile players who have opted out across major leagues. We've seen three of the World Series champion nationals, including the face of the franchise for so many years, Ryan Zimmerman, opting out. The San Francisco Giants have lost Buster Posey, their catcher and a former MVP, a three-time World Series champion, because he and his wife just adopted two twins that were born prematurely, so he's doing it for family reasons, as are basically everyone who has opted out so far. No one's really opted out due to medical reasons quite yet. What do you think about the players who have opted out and how much do you think that's going to play a role in how teams play their season? I mean, I think you got to respect the players who opted out. I mean, they did it for a reason and it's pretty much probably for their families and for their own safety. So there's nothing you can say. You just got to support them and you move on. And as for those players that have opted out for those teams, I mean, it's such a short season, 60 games. It's seriously a sprint. So you will definitely feel an impact, but if you can get a guy or two to step up, I mean, you can fill in some of the holes that they're leaving behind. So it will be interesting to see how teams will maneuver around to find production in places that those players opt out. 
And kind of the final part of the equation with the whole pandemic is, are there going to be fans allowed to attend these games? What do you think is the right way to go about with allowing fans or not allowing fans to attend games? I mean, this it's tough. I think the safest thing is to not have fans, but I'm sure that some clubs are going to want to. But in my opinion, I think safety is still the most important thing and probably not having fans is probably the safest bet. But it's different when you don't play with fans in the stands. I've talked to some people over in the KBO. They don't have fans yet. And some of the players mentioned, like, it's just not the same atmosphere. So I'm sure the players are going to want it after a few weeks. And I'm sure the ownership is going to want it. And I'm sure the city is going to want it. Some fans are going to want to go to the game. So it's going to be interesting to see how each club does it. Yeah, it is going to be interesting to see if some teams are going to allow fans while other teams aren't or can't because of where they are located. But now let's talk about your team, the Toronto Blue Jays. You've got a lot of exciting young players that are sons of former Major League players like Vladimir Guerrero Jr., Bo Bichette, Kevin Biggio, and brought in some new starting pitchers, maybe a little bit of a revamp starting rotation this year. So let me get your thoughts on what the outlook is for the Blue Jays for this upcoming season. To sum it up, it's just exciting. We might have one of the best core young players. And, you know, you mentioned Bobby Shedd, Ivan Guerrero Jr., and Kevin Biggio. I mean, we just have a plethora of young players. And we have another group coming behind them, too, as well. So it's just nothing but excitement. And they're fun to watch each and every day. The simple word for the Blue Jays around the organization and around baseball is exciting. And it was great, you know, the leadership did such a great job of adding starting pitching because starting pitching is always the hardest thing to find. And I felt like we've added some really quality starters, guys who've been around the league and could stabilize the rotation, especially with these young players. So it looks good now, but it's only going to look better as we go forward. The big signing was, of course, pitcher Hun Jin Ryu from the Dodgers, but also Tanner Roark, Chase Anderson coming over to help solidify the pitching. And I was actually at the Rogers Center last year for the debut of Vladimir Guerrero Jr. And you could feel the excitement, even though it wasn't a packed house, you could feel the excitement among the fans for him. And so I got to see that game when they played the A's in Toronto. And I think he's the type of guy who obviously you're going to try and maybe build the franchise around. But he might be going through a little bit of a change. He came up as a third baseman, but it looks as though he's going to transition over to playing first base and DHing more. Travis Shaw may be playing more at third base. Is that a type of thing that was planned from the beginning with Vladimir Guerrero Jr.? Do you know that? I'm not sure exactly, but I know the most important thing was to make sure his bat's in the lineup every single day. That is no question about it. So whether he's playing first, the third, or DH, we're just trying to keep him healthy and make sure that bat's in the lineup as many times as possible to do damage. So, I mean, he's going to be fine at first base or DH or third or wherever. He's a really good player, but most importantly, he's a very, very good hitter. He's a strong middle-of-the-order bat, so that's the most important thing. And talk about the fact that you're only going to be playing AL East and NL East teams. Obviously, the AL East is stacked. You've got the Yankees. You've got the Rays, the Red Sox to contend with there. I mean... It seems like that's a tough division to play in, but what do you think about how the schedule lays out for everybody? Yeah, I mean, it's the safest, right? The East Coast teams play the East Coast teams. It's not that far of a travel. I think that's just natural, but unfortunately, we are playing probably two of the best divisions in baseball. I think playing the defending national champs, we're playing the Yankees, the Red Sox, and the Rays are always good. We also got the Braves who stack. 
the Phillies who've added a lot of good pieces and they have stars on their team. So it's going to be a battle, but it's also going to be fun. You know, you want to play the best teams and see where you are day in and day out. So it's going to be an exciting 60-game sprint. And I think no one is expecting the Blue Jays to necessarily be in playoff contention, but you never know in a 60-game season if you guys get hot, all of a sudden, uh, eight-game winning streak means a whole lot more in a 60-game season than it might in a 162-game season. So what do you think would be considered a successful season for the Blue Jays? I mean, that's tough to tell. You know, we are not expected to compete at this moment. But like I said, if, if we are in contention by the end, I think that's just itself is a pretty good season. But there's no real standards at this point just because we have so many young players and we've got a revamp starting rotation. So the expectations are probably different among everybody else. And we just got to see how it plays out. Yeah, I think everyone is looking forward to it. I think everyone is going to be interested to see how this 60-game sprint, as you put it, will play out for Major League Baseball. And, of course, if you enjoy listening to the Everything USC podcast, I'm Nara Wang, joined today by my special guest, Stephen Yu, a scout for the Toronto Blue Jays, former USC baseball player and longtime involvement in the baseball world, both here in America and internationally, which we're about to get into. But if you enjoy listening to us, you can find the show on all of your favorite podcast directories, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, and TuneIn. Subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Or go to the website Believe.com, B-L-E-A-V.com, on social media at Believe Podcasts. You can find and follow me on Twitter at Narawang Sports, N-A-R-A-W-E-N-G Sports. Steven, where can everyone catch up with you on social media? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Steven38U. Also, hopefully follow the Blue Jays at Blue Jays and follow us for the 60 game sprint. Marcus Grant here from the NFL Network, and you're checking out the Everything USC podcast with my old roommate, Nara Wang, on the Believe Podcast Network. I believe in Trojan sports. Hope you believe, too. Fight on. And now, of course, we talked a little bit about the fact that you have experience with the Korea Baseball Organization, and the KBO is getting a lot of attention because they've been broadcast on ESPN during this pandemic. So I want to talk a little bit about your experience there and get a little bit of insight into how does the level of play compare with baseball over here in America? You know, I like to say it's really probably the rangiest just because depending on the starting pitcher, I mean, you can go anywhere from literally A ball level to triple A, like high end triple A for a level. It just depends who is pitching that day. It's such a vast difference in skill levels. I mean, the superstars compared to some of the young kids, there's a lot of 18-year-old kids, kids just coming out of high school playing. So it's really hard to pick one level of baseball for the KBO. That's interesting. And in terms of foreign players, how many foreigners are allowed on a team and what's the process of bringing them into the KBO? So you're allowed three foreigners, and you can only have two in the same position. So it's either two pitchers, one hitter, or two hitters, or one pitcher. And the process is really just, there's a few teams that have full-time scouts like myself who live in the U.S., and what we do is go through each roster, find out guys who are AAA, 4A level players, and we just want to scout them, and we put a list together, and we present it to our bosses, our upper management, and we do our due diligence. We cut the comb, and we shrink it down, and we decide on who we want to get. Granted, obviously, there's a negotiating process involved with that, whether it's with them as a free agent or with the club. If there's a player that we want to 
purchase their contract from a big league club. We will do that if that's necessary. And it's a little bit different in KBO because there are financial restrictions where you can only spend a maximum of a million dollars on a first-year foreign player too. So there is some strategy involved trying to get the best player possible. For baseball fans out there, what players did you help bring into the KBO from America? So the first ever player that I actually signed was James Loney, the longtime Dodger, was a Ray. He's actually the first player that I ever got to sign to bring over. And then the following year, got to sign Tyler Wilson, who's still currently pitching for the LG Twins, and a third baseman named Adonis Garcia. He was with the Braves when we got him. And the last guy I got to sign was Casey Kelly, who happens to still be pitching for the LG Twins. So those are some recognizable names for sure. And on the flip side, are we going to see more Korean players maybe get a chance to come over to America and get a shot at the major leagues because of this newfound exposure that these games are being broadcast on ESPN? You know, there was momentum building towards a lot of these Korean players coming over, obviously with Hyunjin Ryu and then Jung Ho Kang and Sung Wan Oh, you know, there's talent out there. And now with the KBO being on ESPN, I think teams will be a little bit more active. I think it just sped up the process of the exposure. And I think you'll see a lot more attention there. Whether they come over or not, it still remains to be seen. But definitely you'll see a lot more eyeballs and a lot more scouts over at the KBO games. And for you, because you went over there and played, did that help in the transition to scouting for the KBO? It really helped a lot. You know, I am Korean American, so I grew up speaking the language and understanding the culture. So when I went over there, you know, even though they knew I wasn't born there, they still treated me like a domestic, one of them. So I got the full experience of being a Korean in Korea. So I think that really put a lot of things in perspective. I remember me being there in my first couple months. You can know the language, you can know the culture all you want, but I mean, there were still some adjustments for myself to be made. And I always thought to myself, man, these foreigners, that's got to be a huge change for them. So, and then that's why you start thinking and try to pick out personalities and little things that would probably help them or at least be able to make that transition culturally to the KBO. So it really, really helped me identify players that I know that they can acclimate themselves quickly over there. Yeah, obviously you being of Korean heritage, that helps for sure. And I think it also maybe would have helped a team, right? If you were there and you could help kind of bridge the gap between a foreign player on the team as well as the other players, just because you're kind of between both worlds. Yeah, I mean, the first year when I signed, we signed James Loney. It was in the middle of the season, so there's not much I can do besides just give him some pointers before he left. But the following year, when we signed Tyler Wilson and Adonis Garcia, and especially with Tyler, I knew him from before. We had a relationship a little bit. He was with the Baltimore Orioles, and luckily my younger brother was working for the Baltimore Orioles at the time, translating for a pitcher who happened to be in AAA with Tyler Wilson. So knew him, and obviously Tyler kind of knew, but in spring training, I got to be there with him for almost a full duration of it. So you would probably have to ask him if I helped him or not, but I like to believe like me being there, uh, being around him as much as I did for spring training, I tried to really help him acclimate with the little things, especially with the scheduling and all the information they try to give to him. I would like to think it did help me being able to be there and help him get acclimated. And last thing about the KBO, what would you say is the biggest difference in how the KBO does things or how the game is played there versus how it's done here in baseball with the major leagues? So I think a lot of people don't realize is I think the KBO is going through like they're in the, right in the middle of like a philosophical baseball change. 
Korean baseball in general was very heavily influenced by Japanese baseball. So a lot of the coaches and a lot of the techniques and strategies all came from Japanese baseball. But, you know, maybe, I don't know how long exactly, but recently, you know, you notice a lot of coaches started going out, coming to intern and try to learn Major League Baseball the way they do it. And obviously Japan plays a lot more small ball. It's not really about the power game, but obviously big leagues is. So you're seeing kind of a shift from a small ball play in the KBO. Now you're seeing all these homers and trying to get guys to be more aggressive in the zone and try to walk less guys. They're right in that middle right now and transitioning to try to play really more on the American style on a daily basis. I mean, you can still tell there's still small ball here and there. Especially you'll see it more as the season goes when games matter a lot more. But back in the day, it was bunting in the first week of the season, just trying to win that game. But they don't do that as much anymore. They're just trying to hit the long ball and be entertaining for the fans. And, you know, homers and offense is always fun, right? So you're seeing a little transition there now in the way the game is being played in the KBO. For sure. I think the whole launch angle revolution is getting worldwide now and Again, one of the things that people talk about with the KBO is the bat flips. And you see guys doing the bat flips, and so maybe some of that it will end up translating over back here. I mean, you see the bat flips over here, but it seems as though it's frowned upon because of the unwritten rules of baseball. And maybe we're going to get both sides helping each other out in that kind of way where you can see bat flips without people getting too offended over here in America. And you'll see more homers and a bigger offensive explosion over there in Korea. So appreciate your insights into that because again for a lot of people who were missing baseball this was their shot to actually watch baseball during this time with the pandemic Mm -hmm. canceling the MLB season up until July 23rd so before I let you go though I know you're the big USC guy so we got to talk about the fact that we are looking at a fall sports season that is going to be heavily impacted by the pandemic. The Pac-12 and Big Ten conferences have already announced that they're going to conference-only schedules for fall sports. And a lot of the schools have said that a lot of the learning is still going to be done remotely, online. I mean, does it make sense to play if a lot of these academics are going to be done online and on-campus living is limited? How do you feel about what's going on in the college sports scene? Well, I think, you know, a big part of the academic and college scene is the students being there, right? The whole atmosphere. You take that away, it's a little bit awkward and probably not as enjoyable. But at the same time, it kind of makes sense that if having students there and more people there might just cause more of a chance of a outbreak or more spreading, right? So you can see the good and bad side, but it is kind of sad that a lot of these students who went to college, especially go to SC probably to watch SC football, might not be able to enjoy this fall. So I guess it's good and bad. Yeah. But I think they're doing the right thing, though, and trying to actually play the season this year. I mean, I think the effort is as much as possible for these Power 5 conferences to play football just because, again, the bottom line of how much money football brings in, although by going conference only, that means games against Alabama to begin the season, the rivalry against Notre Dame, those games are going away for this season. So if USC football, we hope that they're going to play, what do you hope out of that team for this season? My hope just like every other SC fan, is nothing less than first place. I think that's a standard at USC football, winning Pac-12 South and winning the Pac-12 championship and obviously getting to one of the major bowls is always a goal. I think anything less than that, it's always a disappointing season. So even for a pandemic, maybe just a conference play, I still expect and hope that USC football could be Pac-12 champs this year. 
I think that's the standard, and it'll be interesting if it becomes a conference-only schedule, how that will work out, and what plays out for USC there. And again, by the time we get to winter and spring, we're hoping that there'll be USC baseball. After how last season got cut short, we'd like to see, obviously, USC baseball get a full season in under head coach Jason Gill and see what he can do in trying to turn around the program. But again, it's been a great show here on the Everything USC podcast with my guest today, Stephen Yu, Toronto Blue Jays scout and former USC baseball player. You can find the show, subscribe and rate us wherever you get your favorite podcasts, whether it's iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, and TuneIn. Go to the website Believe.com, B-L-E-A-V.com, on social media at Believe Podcast. And you can find and follow me on Twitter at Nara Wang Sports, N-A-R-A-W-E-N-G Sports. Steven, let everyone know where they can catch up with you. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Steven38U. And please follow the Blue Jays at Blue Jays in the 60-game shortened season. Steven, it's been great to have you on, getting a chance to talk some baseball on a wide variety of topics within baseball as well. And really appreciate you taking the time to come on today. Thank you, Nara. It's been great. Appreciate having me on. So for my guest, Steven Yu, Toronto Blue Jays scout and a fellow USC alum, I'm Nara Wang. Thanks for joining us for episode six of the Everything USC podcast on the Believe Podcast Network, Los Angeles' number one sports podcast network, the only place with the show for every team in LA and more. We believe in our teams. Do you believe? And like I end every show, please remember to fight on. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.